This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. With me on the show tonight, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood. Good evening to you both. Hello, hello. Good evening. Oh, very, very Count Dracula there. Good evening. It's Halloween. <laughs> We've got a completely non-Halloween themed show really tonight. We, we didn't embrace it at all. We can spook it up a bit. We can spook it up. Yeah. We are going to take a look at Paul. L. The provocative new film by Paul Verhoeven, starring Isabelle Huppert. And we're also going to revisit Repulsion, Roman Polanski's 1965 film starring Catherine Deneuve, which is screening as part of an upcoming season of Polanski films at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. I guess Repulsion can pass sort of as a horror film, so there you go. We, we, we kind of are with the theme of yeah, tonight. I'd say Psychological it's a horror. horror film. Mm, absolutely. A classic one. That fits. Very much so. Yeah. Very much a classic. That's coming way later in the show. We're going to start off now, though, with Hell or High Water, a modern-day western-slash-heist film about two brothers, played by Chris Pine and Ben Foster, robbing regional banks in Texas in order to raise enough money to save the family farm. Jeff Bridges co-stars as one of the Texas Rangers who is attempting to catch them. Hella or High Water is directed by the Scottish director David McKenzie, whose previous film, The Prison Drama Startup, was covered on Plato's Cave in November 2014. We also covered the film Sicario and last, uh, on a show last year, and Sicario was written by Taylor Sheridan, who also wrote Hell or High Water. Other notable credits on the film include Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, who provide the score. Of course. What did we think of Hell or High Water? I keep calling it L or High Water because I get my films this week modelled up. <laughs> because, A, I'm an idiot, but, B, that would also be an incredible film. Like, surely that mashup is going to happen. Uh, L or it, High Water. Isabella Huppert's character from L in this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Her I, character I, in anything would be fantastic. That's, that's my dream. Like, <laughs> Ellen Repulsion, actually, it probably wouldn't be that hard. thinking about the wrong film. Stop your postmodern mashing up. We really really want to jump to Repulsion, don't we? (laughs) Repulsion, Repulsion. All right, let's let's do Hello High Water. Hello High Water. Hello High Water. Okay, we all stop. Um, Okay, Hello High Water. Look, I really really enjoyed it, actually. I was... um, I wasn't sure if I would, but it's it's in terms of I actually watched it. I watched it a second time in order to um, I don't know absorb it all, and I felt that it was a film that came together better on a second viewing. I at the start of um, watching it the first time, I wasn't entirely sure. It is a little bit hard to grab all the dialogue too, just because it's very heavy southern drawl and it's mumbled a lot. Not just me then, that's good. Mm. Yes, good. Okay, we're both deaf, so (laughs) there you go. But um, I think that in terms of it it being about the American contemporary condition, it really hit on something that... uh, says a lot at this time um and it revealed and it really touches on it's not just about that post the gfc the post gfc thing uh it's also uh talks a lot about ethnic um issues as well which come through very subtly more in the dialogue and the the sense of humor 
and stuff like that. But um, for me, when it open, um, the the film opens, it really coming from a, being a girl brought up in Norlane and Corio in Geelong, <laughs> it rang really good, really close to home. I went, oh my god, this could be seriously, except for the tumbleweeds, but they'll probably be coming soon. Uh, it could be Norlane or Geelong. It even had the oil refinery shell. It had that feeling of. Oh, sorry for anyone from Norlane or Geelong, uh, Norlane or Corio, but it's it had that feeling of a town, uh, an area that has that was dying, you know, that was, and it was very much about the desperation of the people and a modern Robin Hood story, really, when you think about it. Um, I also liked the way it was a film that had lots of shifting loyalties, and that always works really well. So there wasn't the bad guy or the good guys mm. as such; it was everyone was had their shades of grey and um, I thought that worked really really well and it's another yellow film coming from last week we went from it's a the very golden, yellow film yeah but this mm. is more sort of a blown out kind yellow toxic film toxic yes yellow lots yep. of sun flares it feels hot um, performances are all great. Jeff Bridges, what can't he do? I mean, really. Uh, are, you, are you okay? Did you need a moment? <laughs> I just, got, it just got really weird there. Just going, did, it, did it really? Oh, God. It is. It's sort of... I'm, I'm actually currently listening to the current episode of This American Life where they're asking who are the people who support Trump because this has divided Republicans and, you know, the, the, there is a real... Attempt by a lot of journalists to figure out who on earth is it who's actually voting for this guy? Is it just that they're crazy, racist rednecks, or you know, there's obviously more to it than that? And and I sort of suspect that a lot of the people we see in these towns depicted in Hell or High Water might be Trump voters because Absolutely. these are towns that have been left behind and they yeah. fall into ruin and, and they just want change there's, it doesn't yeah. matter what it is it's like there's got to be something yeah. different. We there's need not a change. lot of neoliberal discourse about people feeling disenfranchised. You know, it's no. like, oh, they're the, what's the word? Not the disgracefuls, the D, oh, I've forgotten. There's a, the word that not degenerates. The, there's a catchphrase that they're using. I'm so sorry um, for the people that are voting for Trump. Oh, um, the, the disaffected or the dissatisfied? You know, the, everybody knows the word <laughs> that I mean. People are screaming at, at their three radios. In the morning. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think people this who film, feel dissed. This is a film <laughs> about people who feel disenfranchised. Mm. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, you know, yeah. the system has let yeah. down. And, and, um, and I think that does tie it together with a lot of those sort of post-GFC films, which I think is actually starting to come together as a really interesting, maybe not a genre in its own right, but certainly a trope. Um, I think there's a really, really interesting selection of films that are starting to fall under that that umbrella that, that will date dramatically but be really interesting because of that, I think, in that kind of, you know, in in the same way that um, kind of, you know, film noir and its connection to the kind of um, disillusionment with World War II and things like that, you know, I think that we've got this very zeitgeist moment happening in these post-GFC films that I think is really fascinating. This film I think I have to see again because there were moments in it that are some of my... I mean, there's a there's a scene in a um, in a diner with a waitress played by an actor called Margaret Bowman <laughs> that is, without doubt, it goes for maybe three minutes tops and it's just, it's just Jeff Bridges and his buddy ordering food or trying to order food. It is a kind of a nothing scene, but it's without doubt one of my favourite moments in film this year. I just loved it so much. It just crackled... But there are moments like that, but it didn't feel sustained for me. And maybe if I watch it a second time, 
I think that, it would. I think what you'll see a second time, which I, I really loved, was because the, you know, Jeff Bridges' character is kind of like the, the everyday prophet. Basically, when you look at it, uh, he's, he, he's, he tells the, he tells the truth, not in a Donald Trump way, as in he's just got the inside. He knows his shit, right? And his interactions, there's the interaction with, uh, two waitresses, which is Kate, Katie Mixon's character and the interaction that you talked about. And both of them have him flawed. That's the only time that he's actually has no comeback. And That's actually like, one of the one of the things I would really like that really stood out to me with this film um, is this idea of invisible matriarchs mm. um, who aren't on screen much. So the whole film is really centred around the mother. Yep. You know, it's the legacy of this mother that we never see, but who's talked about constantly. The whole action of the film is driven by the mother you know these two these two young young men are, are kind of brought together because of their inheritance yeah. and it's the kind of the legacy this family legacy and i love the power that she has over the narrative even though she's invisible yeah and i, and I think that's why this margaret bowman waitress scene that really is a kind of throwaway nothing moment it's the power of these older women in a film really that's populated by men and, and I, I really liked that but it just i don't it's not you, it's me. I, I have to say to it, Ben Ben Foster, I really struggled with his performance. I don't think it was quote unquote bad. It just felt, and I'm sure that it was done very deliberately, but it felt that it was pitched. It was almost felt like it was coming in from another movie. It just felt like it was at a totally different pitch to the rest of the film. And I just found it quite jarring. Um, it, it just didn't work for me. And again, I, these aren't shabby filmmakers they're not shabby performers so i don't think it's anything like oh i think he's a bad actor or anything like that i think that it it was obviously done for a very definite reason and i wonder if that will come through to me on a second viewing i struggle with ben foster as a rule i think yeah. he's, he's an actor who just tends to play angry violent guy i just find and him shrill yeah, like yeah. Really I, shrill. I never, i've never got much out of any of his performances i did go back to see this film a second time as, as well and i had i think the opposite experience sadly emma oh, which is oh. it confirmed a lot of my suspicions the first time i saw it which is this is there's not not much really to this film i think it's all very surface i kind of acknowledge how it's name checking gfc issues and th this idea of the, the the family farm is under threat and the two brothers have to rob from the bank that they have to pay back to to, to raise the money um but, but, you know, a lot of this stuff we saw done in, say, a film like Killing Them Softly, the, the Andrew Dominic film, which is the first one that came to mind when I saw this. And that's just so... I think that's a far more sophisticated, engaging, well-crafted film. Jeff Bridges... Jeff Bridges. <laughs> Jeff Bridges <laughs> as... Jeff Bridges in Bridges. See, we're keeping yeah. the Halloween vibe going. <laughs> Jeff Bridges as the lovable racist. I sort of... That grated on me. <laughs> worst obituary ever yeah. <laughs> but that's that's how he was pitched he's no, kind you're of exactly right isn't it delightful how he makes fun of his partner for yep. his race and those charming ethnic slurs and although, that, <laughs> although that kind of comes back to bite you know his character in in the ass a bit because you know of the way things unfold i don't feel that character who put up with the racial abuse ever got any of his own back for that and that sat with me that that, that, that didn't sat, sit well with me at all and I, yeah, and, and 
I was really curious to discover after the fact that this was written by Taylor Sheridan, who also wrote Sicario. And I had very similar issues with Sicario, as you remember, as I did with this film, which is... Yeah. I I don't want to... Yeah. And for for the record, I'm in the minority in that I had problems with Sicario, and it was a film that Alex and Josh picked as their favourite for last year. So I'm not going to bash that film, but but I thought Sicario was a beautifully directed film with a vacuous script. For me, it was a great roller coaster ride. And this is the same. This film has felt like a bit of a romp. Um, although you know, I'm it, curious... it didn't have the energy that Sicario did in terms of just the momentum. And I agree. Um, I think Sicario is a better film than this. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe just Villeneuve's a better director. I guess I we'll, think, we'll get think, to that I in a couple he, of weeks when we far, do Arrival. Well, I've seen Arrival. Yeah. Don't he, even he, get me he's a far better that. director. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I, I think this is okay. This is not to say I think yeah. it's a bad film. I think this is perfectly fine, but I don't think it's particularly deep. Although, again, I just want to pick up on your comment, Alex, about the Invisible Matriarchs, because I think we got that in Sicario as well. And that was yeah. a bone of contention I had with Sicario, and you and I debated that quite passionately. <laughs> but I, I see that that might be something of interest to this writer. He actually has women very absent physically from his films, but their presence looms large. And maybe mm. I can start to reconcile that because I can see it, see a pattern. But um, look, I thought this was perfectly okay. Perfectly okay. <laughs> I think in terms of what we've, we're, we're talking about this week... It's the less dynamic film, <laughs> let's shall we say. Yep. But um, it's, it's a good. I mean, the hell yeah. of high water. It's a good genre film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I did like the take. I mean, you know, as you're doing the South, you're doing a, you're doing a Western. It's essentially a Western. Yep. So um, I did think that racism comes into play. Every character actually was a flawed character, but in that was great, you know. No one was the someone that you went, he's a good he's just a good guy. You know, everyone had their flaws of some sort. The shifting loyalties, that's what I like. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Elle is the new film by the Dutch filmmaker Paul Verhoeven, who is best known for his blockbuster Hollywood films of the 1980s and 1990s, in particular the science fiction action films Robocop, Total Recall and Starship Troopers. He is also known for his erotic thriller Basic Instinct, and he's somewhat more notoriously known for making showgirls. L is Verhoeven's first feature film in a decade since Black Book in 2006, It stars Isabelle Huppert in the lead role as a woman who is raped in the first scene of the film and then reacts in various ways that at first may seem somewhat perplexingly low-key. Elle has been described as a comedy, as a thriller, as a rape-revenge film. It's sort of all those things, but sort of not. It certainly is disarming and engaging. I see it as a social satire about class, gender roles, sexuality and moral hypocrisy. What do you both think? I can't even begin to talk about how much I adore this film. My I'll, I'll wave me. that flag as well. I I'm, think this is an amazing film. You know that film. episode of The Simpsons where Homer and Marge are in the car with their little showgirls flag? That's yes. me, but with a little L flag. Like, yeah. I, I'm waving The Simpsons flag for L. I just, yeah. Yeah. I just love this film film so much I, there's just i don't even know where to start let's start with 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 isabel yeah. yeah a lot of people are drawing parallels to hanukkah films the piano teacher and yeah. she's done three films with hanukkah she did seven with chabrol mm-hmm. yeah. i think of her and i i met her through chabrol and also through hell hartley's amateur so i didn't discover her this to me really feels like a not like a pure chabrol film but it's almost like chabrol via samuel 
Beckett. Like there's just some <laughs> crazy. It just it has the intensity and the frenzied melodrama well, of a Chabrol. It's a Hanukkah film. If Hanukkah films were fun. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think um, I, yeah. I'm already rambling. I can already feel my temperature rising. I'm getting so worked up. I don't think Verhoeven ever gets the recognition that he deserves in terms of how deeply and profoundly he, he, he is knowledgeable about cinema. Yeah. What yeah. he brings, I, I firmly believe that Basic Instinct is a neo Gialli. I think it's really consciously indebted to Dario Argento's Terrence Hennebray. Um, and I think it's probably the most the most successful American neo gialli ever made. I mean, it, it's just a classic giallo film in yeah. so many ways. And I think this film, um, you can't underestimate the references. It's so drenched in them. He's um, Verhoeven has flagged Fellini's Eight and a Half, Orson Welles's Touch of Evil, but the really big one is Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game from 1939. You watch those two films back to back. If you're one of these people that you're not really sure how to tackle L, it's I would almost go as far as to say this is not a remake but a reimagining. It's like how do you how do you do the rules of the game in 2016 ramp up the intensity enough for the meaning to really make an impact? And Verhoeven knows how to do that. So I think that that's precisely what he's doing. Um I, yeah, the, I mean, then and the Renoir film is a comedy of manners, and I think that that's exactly what this is in that we have a woman who responds incorrectly. She doesn't and the whole film is about her incorrectness mm. mm-hmm. in that she's doing the wrong thing. She's not playing the role that she's socially meant to play. Or the role and as a, a film audience would expect the people, film yeah. to People depict. are really yeah. discombobulated, I think, in knowing how to deal with that because mm. sexual violence is not an easy thing to get your head around when it's represented on screen. Mm-hmm. But you cannot under... I mean, the way that this stuff is framed, that the... the Deep. I mean, the the, the assault, the, the, what the assailant wears in this film. Um, my first point of reference was um, Danger Diabolique, the Mario Bava film, but then I realised that even that is going back to um, Louis uh, Fouillard's Phantomus. I mean, this stuff is so drenched in early sort of pre-1950s cinema and he's really using that. He's taking these very old forms of, of film storytelling and these very old stories from film and making them very, very contemporary, but keeping the same codes. There's some really, really direct references to the rules of the game in this film. I desperately want everybody to watch both of these films together um, yeah. because I think that the rules of the game is almost the key that unlocks L. Yeah. Um, and I think that, but even on its own, even if you don't know that yeah, well, film. I've, I've never seen rules of the game. It's it's a, yep. a, a glaring omission. But um, L, I think you'd find it a delight to watch in uh, relation it's, it's to one L. one I've been wanting like, to see a long yeah. time. L weaved an incredible spell yep. on me. I, I, I went back to see it a second time. I think it has the same impact for as the rules of the joy game. of it. Yep. Yeah, I um, I remember the first time I came out thinking it, it's kind of dangerous how easily I enjoyed that film. Like it's a really <laughs> easy film to enjoy. But the more I processed it, the more I thought I, I think this is a it, it is a brilliant film that really is shattering moral hypocrisy and really cutting back expectations. And I mean, I, I'd like us to try to sort of talk a bit more about what, what we think is going on with this film. And I think this is just about this is ultimately ultimately there's a lot more to it. Mm. But this is a film about a woman who is refusing to play by the expectations that men place on women like mm-hmm. she's not going to be a victim um she's um i mean the, the, the sexual violence is is not sexualized in the film it's not erotic at all but it's not exploitive either 
Um, but she doesn't play, it doesn't destroy her. It doesn't define her. And ultimately, I think the, the message going on here is, is the, the power that men have with their dicks is not nearly as powerful as they think it is. No, a, I, I think yeah. that's what the men in the film find. Yeah. It's, I th- see, I think that's all really valid. This is the thing. So much is going on here. I also felt that it was really strongly about post-traumatic stress, basically. And I, mm. it, for some reason, I constantly thought of that sex Annabelle Chong uh, documentary. And I won't go into that too much, but for people to see it and maybe keep that in mind, because it's the type of film, and this is what, in us talking about it, it's, there's so much about in terms of uh, cinema having the twist at the end, you know, the whole M. Night Shyamalan sixth sense sort of thing. And this film is just one surprise after another, after Mm. another, after another, but not in the way that it's uh, sore twist storylines like it's not twist for the sake of twist but it's just surprise after surprise i didn't expect that oh i didn't expect that reaction i didn't expect that and um so it's kind of hard to talk to really talk through the movie that much because that will spoil the experience Mm. but i was constantly going I can't believe that's just happened. It's, that's a- <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think at the heart of it, and and I think it, the the giveaway is in the title. It's about her. Yeah. Um. And I th- I think that it's a it's a film about a particular brand of social hypocrisy that that was also obviously of interest to Renoir. And I think that you know he's uh, Verhoeven's been very opening open about riffing on that. But at the same time, I I feel that it's a pair film as much as it, as it is a Verhoeven film. And she's owned that in press conferences. You mm. know, oh, and, oh yeah, yeah. And I just love that so much. Like when people have said, you know, well maybe maybe this isn't the most politically correct thing. She's just called them out. She's like, you 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 don't understand the film. Go watch it again. Yeah. Off you go. And it's like if she tells you that, you you go. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned Annabelle Trunk because what I was thinking of a lot when I was watching this was a little film called. Basemore, which mm-hmm. stars two women. Um, it's a, a rape revenge film, probably a more straightforward rape revenge film. I pro- personally wouldn't apply that label to this film. No, I think I, it's I, incorrect. I don't, I don't think it fits either. Um, no, I agree. But I, I was quoting that's what people yeah, were saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I, it's, I, I don't think it's, it's that. I think yeah. it's, um, mm. it's film critic shorthand for it's easy to put that in a in a hundred word review that it is to, oh, oh but it's not oh but it is yeah. oh but, but it's, it's not it's oh but it is everything this is the thing about Ellis. everything yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's complicated yeah. I, think it's, I think it's a comedy of manners I yeah. really do but yeah. yeah so I was thinking a lot about Base Moi uh, which starred two women directed by two women all four of them have uh, worked in the hardcore porn industry and all four of them had survived sexual violence and there was a press conference where uh, I can't remember one. I think it was Coralie Trinty, one of the directors, said something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, "Look, this happened to us. We have the right to talk about it, however the hell we want. Exactly. We don't have to toe mm-hmm. a line. We don't have to represent it in the way that you feel okay with. We're allowed to talk about it the way that we want." Now, I don't think that's obviously you can't just kind of cut and paste that onto L because we're talking about a male director. And quite a notorious one in the case of, <laughs> of Verhoeven. But I do think that's what I was thinking a lot in terms of the character of Elle. Yeah. In that she 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 just doesn't play the rule, the rules of the game. She's yeah. just like, I don't want to play this game. And I think Christianity is, I mean, Thomas, you were talking about patriarchy, but I think that this film is extremely explicit in how it aligns patriarchy with the church. 
And oh, I think yeah. it is yeah, unrelentingly yeah, yeah. vicious about that. And I think that's where this film's real power comes from. Religion and class are really big in this yep. film. I mean, it's important to point out the film isn't flippant about what happens to her. Um, we see that she's scared and upset by what has happened, but she doesn't express it in the way that you often see in cinema. I mean, sexual violence has a bad history of being portrayed in film, and it's incredibly complicated because it's a very difficult thing to, to explore. It's... it's it's more difficult to deal with than, say, murder because it's more prevalent in the everyday world. Uh, um, so, but I think that too often it is either portrayed as not a big deal and that that's horrific and we don't get that impression from this film, but also there is a problem of sometimes portraying it as that is it for the, for the, the victim, you know, and they stay a victim. They don't become a survivor. And, you know, and this, this is a film about a rape survivor and, and, and how. And not just rape. And I think, Emma, this is going back to what you're talking about in that this is somebody who's experienced quite quite remarkable childhood trauma without going into plot details. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the two aren't separated no. for her. And she she's quite intelligent and quite in touch with her own narrative. Um, yep, and exactly. I think that she very much sees it as that. And she owns it. She's mm. like, okay, so how do I get through? How do I deal with? How do I deal with this? What do I do? And I think that's what's interesting about the phrase "comedy of manners." So we're not talking comedy, like generic comedy. It's comedy of manners in the sense that there's an almost absurdist degree of exposing social hypocrisy, like mm. like you were saying. And I think that's precise. I think this is an absurd film. Yeah, oh, um, that moment when she tells her friends at dinner and then one yeah. of them starts talking to the waiter about the wine. They don't know what to do with the wine. <laughs> yeah. It has that moment remarkable. where he says, actually, could you come back and we'll... <laughs> Pop the cork later. And the, yeah. the, the, the Christmas scene is... I mean, I did laugh out loud a lot Chabrol during the Christmas said, uh, party. Sorry, Chabrol. No, I'm calling yeah. him Chabrol. Why not? We'll just help with the Chabrol. Uh, the, the deceased Chabrol's L. Why not? Um, I just This just reminded me so much of Chabrol in so many ways. Um Verhoeven has said that that was that scene, the, the the Christmas party scene, is probably the best scene he's ever shot, and I think he's right. I think he's right. There's yeah. so much yes. going on. The, the way yeah. that the camera moves, and it doesn't feel like, ooh, look at the camera move. You're just kind of oh, immersed no, you're sucked in this into insane. it. I can't even remember what the camera was doing. I was mm-hmm. too busy watching what was going on in that, trying to condense it in some way. It's just, it's it's literally mind blowing cinema, and you know, I think whether you like it or not it will blow your mind so you have to see it three triple Now, from the 5th to the 20th of November, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image will be presenting Roman Ten Times Polanski, a season of ten films by the acclaimed French-Polish filmmaker Roman Polanski, as well as the 2008 documentary Roman Polanski Wanted and Desired. We thought we would take a look at uh, the three films that are sometimes loosely referred to as Polanski's apartment trilogy of horror films that take place inside apartment buildings. Those films are Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant. So to kick off tonight, we're going to discuss Repulsion. Made in Britain in 1965, it was Polanski's first English language film and only his second feature. Only one year after starring in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Catherine Deneuve stars in Repulsion as Carol, a young woman whose growing anxiety about men and sex cause her perception of the apartment she's staying in to become increasingly nightmarish, making Repulsion something of a classic in its portrayal of character subjectivity. Did you all enjoy revisiting this film as much as I did? Oh, my gosh, so much to say. Look, before we even start, any chance to mention Sharon Tate, who is without doubt probably next to Isabella Gianni, my favourite actress... 
woman actor. Mm. Um, I adore Sharon Tate so much, so, so much. And I wanted to sneak in a little Halloween shout out to Monster Fest um, Triple R sponsors who are Spirit of Transparency. I program their short films, but their launch is tonight. Um, at the Lido in Hawthorne, 24th to 27th of November. They are playing, amongst a whole bunch of amazing films, the 50th anniversary screening of um, J. Lee Thompson's film In the Eye of the Devil with David Niven, Deborah Kerr, David Hemmings, Donald Pleasance, if, and, of course, Sharon Tate. It was three years before she was insanely tragically murdered mm. by Charles Manson's followers. Um, if you don't know Sharon Tate please go and see this film. The chance to see it on the big screen, I think it's probably her best film. little shout-out. I love Sharon. Sharon Tate was Polanski's wife. That's did the I not even put that in there? <laughs> I didn't even put that in there. So, yes, the late wife of Roman Polanski. Yes. Let's talk about Repulsion. Let's talk about Repulsion now that I've got my little Sharon Tate moment out. Um, I love films from this era. I think that it's so easy with Repulsion to get stuck in this kind of beautifully stuck in this sort of auteurist world of the apartment trilogy but what I find really fascinating about Repulsion in particular is how it fits into a cycle of films that are just some of my favourite movies of all time which are movies that foreigners made about getting lost or disappearing in London during Mm. the 60s so you had uh, Antonioni's Blow Up in 1966 Um, the blacklisted US director Joseph Losey did an amazing film called The Servant with Dirk Bogart in 1963 these outsiders coming into London and making films about just getting sucked into the vortex of London. And I think Repulsion is a great Lost in London film, aside from it how is. it fits into that trilogy. You know, this idea of, a, of a, um, an outsider director and an outsider actor coming in together and it, to this very London film, this kind of swinging 60s London. It was his... Um I actually didn't realise this, but it was only his second film. So yeah, it was his first English language. Yeah, that? he did yep. Knife in the Water yep. before yep. that, yep. which was Polish, wasn't it? He did it in yep. Polish. That was back in his home country, yeah. Poland, yep. yeah. And yep. um, so this is uh, particularly accomplished. When was Cul-de-Sac? Was Cul-de-Sac after? Cul-de-Sac was the next one. Right. Yeah, it's a hell after. of a, you know, those first three yeah. films yeah. he made are all extraordinarily good. Yep, yep. and Cul-de-Sac starred um, Catherine Deneuve's sister. Oh, did it really? Yeah. And Donald Pleasance is in that as well. And Donald Pleasance, yeah. But, um, yeah, I think this this film, I mean, the thing about Polanski is he's just, he's he's kind of a perfect filmmaker, as in he's a perfect visual storyteller, visual and oral storyteller. He uses the elements of film so beautifully. And uh, this film, to create, because it's essentially about a woman going mad, oh, and she, well, she kind of starts off mad. I think yeah, madder. Madder, mm. yeah, her actual breakdown. And um, he manages to create the intangible, which is her madness in her head. It make it tangible, like you see it. You see it in the imagery he uses a lot of, uh, and with uh, kudos to um Gil Taylor, who was the cinematographer, who interestingly shot Star Wars, would you believe? No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> um, very different film. But uh, these contorted... Uh, I always came... Watching watching it again, I always came from the point of view that it was a really gorgeous film. But when you watch it, it's actually 
really quite grotty and gritty. And some really grotesque imagery in a kind of carnival-esque way. Yeah, trying to Mm. make Catherine Deneuve look awful and it never works, but uh, it's the the walls are grotty. Even the black and white is grotty. It's really harsh. There's no soft focus on our lead actress, which would have been the thing at the time. Um, It's black and white. You could say that's an aesthetic choice and it looks amazing, but it wasn't. It was budget. That's mm. all they could afford at the time and the only way they could do it. I couldn't imagine it in colour. I just can't no, imagine. No, I couldn't. That's the thing. It makes so much sense that, that, that like it's, it's that just, way. It has the life drained out of it. Yeah. You know, that. But you've got that visual style that, that he just uses so well and then you've got the sound, which is the way he incorporates music. There is the Chico Hamilton score, but it's not its not just densely overlaid. Everything else is about the, the sounds around the apartment or what Polanski loves, and we'll, we've, we'll have it in Rosemary's Baby as well, that the piano from another room, you know, mm. the crossing across the... The ambient sound the, is really the, big, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the, yeah. the tenant does that as well. Yeah, with the clock ticking. The and, clock ticking yep. that every student has put in their film since that. And So uh, many art house cliches, it's beginning repulsion. Yes. I, I'm watching it again going that that kind of mournful flute score is it kind yep. of became the cliche for the black and white arty film from the 60s but this film kind of did all that that first i i've forgotten how beautifully this film works as a, a piece of surrealist cinema i mean it's possibly not purely surrealist in the sense that there is a very coherent narrative but its representation of dream logic manifesting in 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 the waking world is is just you know, that Boone is Wells, pure surrealism. Boone Wells and Chian Andalou is so... It's alluded to in the opening credits. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, I, I studied this when I was studying surrealism, and, and, and this was a really good film for the idea that surrealism originally... And surrealism, psychoanalysis and cinema all were born at about the same time and developed together. And, and the 60s had some remarkable things happening when they all sort of exploded in different directions. And surrealism was originally this idea of our tapping into our subconscious. You'd find this thing called the marvellous that would liberate us from um, reality and and it would all be wonderful and, and, and glorious. But people over the decades started saying, we think what's going on is closer to what Freud talked about in his psychoanalysis. Yeah, the uncanny. Of the uncanny, the repetition of trauma that when we tap into our subconscious, it it conjures up all sorts of really horrible, repressive things. And that's what we get in Repulsion. And the film increasingly makes it hard for us to tell what is real and what is something she's imagining. The apartment literally transforms around her as as she descends further and further into, you know, her her sort of psychosis, which is a mixture of of loathing and the guilt she feels for the... You know, this is a woman who doesn't know how to love or to connect to men. She kind of makes attempts at it and then feels an enormous guilt and loathing but she's also mm-hmm. repulsed mm-hmm. Um, you know the, 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 it's a beautiful title for, for, for this film but yet you know the, the set was literally expanded out because mm-hmm. you know the idea is she, she, the, the set becomes this little cave for her to hide in the apartment I'm talking about is this little cave for her to hide in and she's fearing invasion and, and, and the comfort of that vanishes when the space gets larger and larger and, you know, they actually moved the space of the apartment out to, to depict that, that sensation. And then the film that... Re- Sorry. No, that's all right. The way that he con- uh, contrasts that to the outside world as well because that's most of it was actually filmed in 
on the street in South Kensington with just normal people walking past. It's fairytale, isn't so it? So he creates, yeah, yeah he and creates again with Rosemary's baby. Normalcy, with that, yeah. uh, there's so many little shout-outs to to later films that you can see him coming back. There's a moment where I think she's she sees her reflection in a kettle or a saucepan. Yes. And in Rosemary's baby, you've got the toaster and that famous scene in Rosemary's baby where. I think Polanski, the, the big apocryphal story, is that he just told Mia Farrow, just walk across this crowded New York street, people will stop for you. And, and none of the camera people would walk, none of the cameramen would go with her. They're like, we're not doing that. So Polanski had to hold the camera himself. And he just said, no, they won't hit you. You're a pregnant woman. They're not going to hit you. And you get that feeling in Repulsion. Mm. There's these things where she's just wandering around, clearly off her head. And it's Absolutely. like, is she going to be okay? You have that real immediacy, that real sense of panic. Yeah, yeah. It's funny talking about these... Um, more, I guess, sort of the surrealist, more kind of art house tendencies because watching the film again recently, and it's one of those films like you guys, I've seen it so many times, mm. the film that I kept coming back to and I've never thought about it before in relation to Repulsion was The Haunting. Is it oh, Robert, yeah. Robert Wise? It's Robert Wise, yeah. yeah it's like, his horror film. Like classic, is, yeah. classic, classic kind of Hollywood horror. But it does this, lots of use of silence, lots of use of, cr- lots of use of creaking and crackling and just this amazing relationship to a physical space mm. and a woman's deteriorating mental state. I think that, yeah, I, I was really struck actually at how many parallels that there were between those two films. The other thing I wanted to mention is that there is um, a, a great sequence in this where she talks about one of her friends from the um, the beauty salon where she works, uh, one of the only other locations in the film, relates um, seeing a Chaplin film to her, which is really odd in 1960s for two people to be talking about Chaplin. But... Chaplin was loved by the Surrealists. The Surrealists adored early comedy uh, musicals and horror and science fiction because it was film doing the impossible and using amazing imagination. Mm. Uh, And the other thing I wanted to mention is I'm sure David Lynch must have studied this film to death. I don't think (laughs) I've ever heard Lynch mention Polanski as an inspiration, but so much of this film informs a Razorhead especially, and even elements of Twin Peaks. There there is a scene... (laughs) Where the, the sequence ends on the street, and we just see a couple of um, oh no, we see a trio of uh, oh, the buskers, buskers, yeah, the spoon two guys buskers. bent over yeah. playing spoons, and the guy with the banjo, yeah. and the camera just follows them, and there's a there's a there's a sound callback to them later in the film. I mean, that is direct out of the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks. Yeah. It's apparently they the, were actual buskers, and he just decided to capitalize. What a smart on move, just to yeah. keep the camera on that that trio and follow them. Yeah, how can the rabbit not? Be related to a razor head. Yeah. Oh, like, I mean, the rabbit almost looks like. Identical. Yeah, I mean, it's so there's direct. a de- decaying rabbit in the apartment, which is um, symbolic I'm of her with that confused desire mm-hmm. for her sister's boyfriend. Is my mm-hmm. reading. <laughs> One of my favourite final images of a film. Like, it's such a cliche. It's just a it's just a close up of a photograph. Yep. Um, I don't think that's a spoiler at all for those. Oh, who it's a 1965 seen it. film. It's, yeah, if you if you don't, let's go easy on ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Rosebud's a sled. I'm sorry. Like, get over it. But sort of sort of that close up hints that. This is it's, a problem that began in childhood, which is yeah, very exactly. psychoanalysis. Very, very Freud, like paging Dr. Freud. But it's beautiful. Like yeah. it's such, I mean, it's such a cliched ending in a way, thinking about it from 2016. Yeah. But it's so powerful and so potent in that film. Just the way, I think it's almost the way that it's lit and the way that the Creepy camera... creeps along like, the It comes in at a strange piece. angle. Yeah. Like it's just a really extraordinary piece mm. of filmmaking. Mm. And to... To end on such a quiet note mm. when the film has escalated so diabolically in that last 15 minutes yeah. is really clever and quite yeah. courageous, I think, quite quite 
absolutely. curious filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. The, the mood of this film is really complicated yeah, because you, you, you feel for her, your heart goes out to her, but she's also infuriating at times, and at times she's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. I, there's not much violence in this film, but the scenes of violence are really full on. I, I was surprised at how much I was flinching at a film made in 65, which I'd seen half a dozen times already. There, I don't, well, yeah. I think that her... her, her, her um, her representation of, of um, mental health issues, uh, 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 I mean, her performance is incredible in yeah, this film. it is. She does what I think Chris, Kristen Dunst, Kirsten Dunst does in Antichrist, in that she doesn't kind of ramp up. Melancholia? Melancholia, yep. sorry, yeah. the other one. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Last one thingy and the film with the thing and the, you know. Um, in that the, there's a detachment. They really, they both, both Dunst and I think Deneuve really work this, detachment yes. and it's yeah. really really clever they don't arc up this hysteria you know this kind of crazy woman out of control hysteria it's this blankness and yeah. it's a withdrawal sort of caught in their own dreams yeah their own day, daydreams whatever that is that they're daydreaming they just they really just withdraw and i think that that is what really amplifies the intensity of the violence when she actually does act when Deneuve's character does act, it's a lot so... Of, a lot of the violence is from um, the your, the from the victim's perspective, I think, as well. So, um, obviously, that puts the audience in a more uncomfortable position. And um, because she's so detached uh, and she's not often engaging with the camera, she's not looking directly into it. She's The only time that she seems more attached in a strange way is when she's actually um, attacking someone. She's a great actor, and I think it's probably her best film. I think I'd go that I far. I think I'd go that far, too. Yes, yeah. I'll say that. I think it's yeah. one of Polanski's best films. Yeah. It's on par with Chinatown for me. Those are my two favourites. That and, yeah, Repulsion. Repulsion, the film we've just been talking about. Hello High Water is on general release through Madman Entertainment. L is on limited release through Sony Pictures. And Repulsion is screening twice as part of the Roman 10 times Polanski season that begins at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image this coming Saturday. The film is screening courtesy of Screenbound UK. You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.